Hi everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 140, I think. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekindoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So last week was that special interview episode with Anonymous Steve from the Skepticule podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback, so if you missed it, please go to iTunes or the official Weekend Out Podbean page, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and check it out. I'd like to thank Steve again for taking part. Uh, We had a lot of fun. And even though the episode was almost four hours long, I think it really flew by for both of us. But the interview with Steve inspired me to do something a little different this week. I'm hoping it'll be both fun and informative. I want to kind of jump around and cover some of the different topics that Steve and I discussed and give some kind of uh, fun facts or background info on them. So you may remember Steve and I discussing bog bodies. Bog bodies are these kind of mummies found throughout Europe. And as I mentioned during that interview, uh, supposedly, at least in some cases, it's a chemical known as tannin in the peat bogs that helps to preserve the bodies. And uh, they look kind of wizened and, uh, for lack of a better word, deflated. But other than that, they're very well preserved, including, I believe, uh, often the the internal organs. But they basically look like leathery, deflated corpses. Hope you're not eating. But they've long fascinated me, and, and it was pretty cool to hear that Steve seemed to have an interest in them, too. But I'll read some basic information about bog bodies from, you guessed it, Wikipedia. A bog body is a human cadaver that has been naturally mummified in a peat bog. Such bodies, sometimes known as bog people, are both geographically and and chronologically widespread, having been dated to between 8000 BCE, before Common Era, of course, and the Second World War. The unifying factor of the bog bodies is that they have been found in peat and are partially preserved. However, the actual levels of preservation vary widely from perfectly preserved to mere skeletons. Unlike most ancient human remains, bog bodies have retained their skin and internal organs due to the unusual conditions of the surrounding area. These conditions include high acidic water, low temperature, and a lack of oxygen, and combine to preserve but severely tan their skin. While the skin is well preserved, the bones are generally not due to the acid in the peat having dissolved the calcium phosphate of the bone. The oldest known bog body is the skeleton of Kolbjorg woman. <laughs> Let's see. K O E L B J E R G. Kolbjorg, perhaps? After my faux pas with the uh, pronunciation of Darby last week, <laughs> I'm more neurotic than usual about uh, how I pronounce things. <clears throat> But anyway, the oldest known bog body is the skeleton of Kolbjörg woman from Denmark, who has been dated to 8000 BCE during the Mesolithic period. The oldest fleshed bog body is that of Cashel man, not Cashew man, I almost said that, Cashel man, who dates to 2000 BCE during the Bronze Age. The overwhelming majority of bog bodies, including famous examples such as Tallinn man, 
Graubal Man and Lindau Man date to the Iron Age and have been found in northern European lands, particularly Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. Such Iron Age bog bodies typically illustrate a number of similarities, such as violent deaths and a lack of clothing. <clears throat> that sounds like a really bad night out. Leading archaeologists to believe that they were killed and deposited in the bogs as a part of a widespread cultural tradition of human sacrifice or the execution of criminals. The newest bog bodies are those of soldiers killed in the Russian wetlands during the Second World War. Usually the corpses were naked, sometimes with some items of clothing with them, particularly headgear. The clothing is believed to have decomposed while in the bog for so long. In a number of cases, twigs, sticks, or stones were placed on top of the body, sometimes in a cross formation, and at other times, forked sticks had been driven into the peat to hold the corpse down. According to the archaeologist P.V. Glob, this probably indicates the wish to pin the dead man firmly into the bog. Some bodies show signs of torture, such as old Krogan man, who had deep cuts beneath <clears throat> who had deep cuts beneath his nipples. I don't even know what to say about that. Some bog bodies, such as Tallinn man from Denmark, have been found with the rope used to strangle them still around their necks. Some such as and I don't even know how to pronounce this Y-D-E girl, in the Netherlands and bog bodies in Ireland had the hair on one side of their heads closely cropped, although this could be due to one side of their head being exposed to oxygen for a longer period of time than the other. Some of the bog bodies seem consistently to have been members of the upper class. Their fingernails are manicured, and tests on hair protein routinely record good nutrition. Strabo records that the Celts practice auguries on the entrails of human victims. On some bog bodies, such as one of the Weerdinge men, I believe, found in northern Netherlands, the entrails have been partly drawn out through incisions. I really hope you guys aren't eating. But anyway, modern, te modern techniques of forensic analysis now suggest that some injuries, such as broken bones and crushed skulls, were not the result of torture, but rather due to the weight of the bog. For example, the fractured skull of Grobble Man was at one time thought to have been caused by a blow to the head. However, a CT scan of Grobble Man by Danish scientists determined his skull was fractured due to pressure from the bog long after his death. So this brings me to the subject of the threefold death. As Steve was saying, uh, these bog bodies are often, uh, or at least they seem to uh, have been triple killed, um, kind of ritualistically killed in three different ways. So yeah, it's referred to as a threefold death. And I'll read a, a little bit of that from Wikipedia as well. I always feel self-conscious when I bring up Wikipedia. Um, I know you're not supposed, once again, I know you're not supposed to use it uh, as a source for scholarly papers or you don't want to cite it in a, you know, um, in a thesis paper or anything like that. But I actually find it a fairly reliable source. If you want to quickly give someone an idea about a topic you already know about, but you want to give them a breakdown, I usually find that Wikipedia is fairly reliable. 
but here's a couple of short paragraphs uh, from Wikipedia about the about the uh, threefold death. The threefold death, which is suffered by kings, heroes, and gods, is a putatively proto-Indo-European theme. Although it is attested in medieval accounts of Celtic and Germanic mythology, some proponents of the trifunctional hypothesis distinguish two types of threefold deaths in Indo-European myth and ritual. In the first type of threefold death, one person dies simultaneously in three ways. He dies by hanging or strangulation or falling from a tree, by drowning or poison, and by wounding. These three deaths are foretold and are often punishment for an offense against the three functions of Indo-European society. The second form of the threefold death is split into three distinct parts. These distinct deaths are sacrifices to three distinct gods of the three functions. And it's funny, um, I guess, uh, so ritualistically, you know, these were th three different kinds of brutal killing executed on the one sacrificial victim, supposedly. But in myth and legend, there's these kind of symbolic stories that have people telling about people who happen to die in three different ways. And here it's talking about the threefold death theme appearing in a story having to do with uh, Murden Wilt, or Wilt, uh, I believe. But uh, basically, uh, the, this character, Murden, is a, a predecessor or one of the inspirations for the character that we know as uh, Merlin from the, uh, from the uh, Arthurian legends. And I'll read a little bit about that. In Welsh legend, Murden Wilt, one of the sources for Merlin of Arthurian legend, is associated with threefold death. As a test of his skill, Merlin is asked to prophesy how a boy will die. He says the boy will fall from a rock. The same boy with a change of clothes is presented again, and Merlin prophesies that he will hang. Then dressed in a girl's clothes, the boy is presented, and Merlin replies, Woman or no, he will drown. As a young man, the victim in a hunt falls from a rock, is caught in a tree, and hanging head down in a lake, drowns. Merton Wilt also reportedly prophesied his own death, which would happen by falling, stabbing, and drowning. This was fulfilled when a gang of jarring shepherds drove him off a cliff, where he was impaled on a stake left by fishermen, and died with his head below water. This is fine. This reminds me of, uh, I can't believe how time flies, because already... You know, the Harry Potter craze is a thing of the past. I still remember when everyone, even adults, was reading uh, those books. And there was this huge Harry Potter mania. But I remember I saw this, like, two-hour documentary on, I don't know if it was the History Channel or Discovery or something. It was kind of jumping on the Harry Potter bandwagon and using that as an excuse to kind of draw eyes to the show. But actuality, it was a two-hour documentary on the subject of magic in kind of English and Celtic uh, legend and tradition. And they were, I remember they were talking about the Merlin character and saying how in some very old uh, versions of the story, and this is the word they use, borrowing from English vernacular, uh, that that in some versions, Merlin was what they call a nutter, basically a crazy person. He was a military deserter who kind of went mad and went off into the woods alone and uh, gained some sort of powers, I guess. But I just mentioned that in passing. And here it talks about 
bog bodies in the threefold death. And I think they're referencing um, an expert here. So they're saying, according to Brothwell, it is one of the most complex examples of quote-unquote overkill in a bog body. And um, so they're talking about Lindau Man here, I think. And possibly has ritual meaning as it was extravagant for a straightforward murder. Archaeologist John Hodgson and Mark Brannand suggest that bog bodies may have been related to religious practice, although there is a division in the academic community over this issue. And in the case of Lindau Man, whether the killing was murder or ritualistic is still debated. Anne Ross, an expert on Iron Age religion, proposed that the death was an example of human sacrifice and that the triple death, throat cut, strangled, and hit on the head, was an offering to several different gods. The wide date range for Lindell Mann's death, 2 BC to 119 AD, means he may have met his demise after the Romans conquered northern England in the 60s AD. As the Romans outlawed human sacrifice, this opens up other possibilities. This was emphasized by historian Ronald Hutton, who challenged the interpretation of sacrificial death. Connolly suggests that as Lindo Mann was found naked, he could have been the victim of a violent robbery, Joyce said. The jury really is still out on these bodies. Whether they were aristocrats, priests, criminals, outsiders, whether they went willingly to their deaths, or whether they were executed. But Lindau was a very remote place in those days, an unlikely place for an ambush or a murder. Well, I mean, you have this body that was disposed of in a bog, like many other bodies, um, and it shows signs of three very distinct different forms of execution. In, in this case, strangulation, bludgeoning on the head, and the cutting of the throat. And we know we have all these myths and stories which refer to this theme of the triple death. So I, I would say I would tend to lean, oh, yeah, we can't know for sure. I would tend to lean towards the uh, ritual sacrificial explanation rather than that he was ambushed by Iron Age highwaymen or something. And if I remember correctly, I think there was actually an episode of Ren and Stimpy that had a uh, bog body. Yeah, there's actually pictures on Google of a, uh, the bog body episode of Ren and Stimpy. And there's a mention of an episode in which Ren was so mad at his friends that he destroys a mummified bog man. <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyway, one last thing on the bog bodies. I, I remember seeing a uh, another documentary, uh, might have been on history or A&E. Here's this theory that some of the individuals sacrificed may have been kind of social elites or the uh, the members of the ruling class. I, I remember them doing one kind of reenactment or, you know, dramatic portrayal where they showed Celts kind of grooming this upper class young man, uh, you know, combing his hair, tending to him, manicuring his nails, all in preparation of him suffering the threefold death. But of course, this was just kind of a dramatic reenactment. For now, it's a theory, a good theory to, to me, but still it's all speculation, relatively speaking. 
And of course, I just made a self-effacing uh, mention <laughs> uh, not long ago about how I mispronounced the name of the English city of uh, Derby, spelled Derby, <laughs> and Steve got a kick out of that. But why not give a little background info on uh, Derby? I almost called it Derby again. Derby is a city and a unitary authority area in the East Midlands region of England. It lies upon the banks of the river <laughs> Here I go again. Derwent? I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. And is located in the south of the county of Derbyshire. Oh man, I'm sure I got that wrong too. Of which it is traditionally the county town. In the 2011 census, the city had a population of 248,700 and 1,543,000 in the wider metro area. As home to Lom's Mill, am I pronouncing that wrong too, the first factory in the world, Derby is considered a birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. With the arrival of the railways in the 19th century, and due to its strategic central location, the city grew to become a foremost center of the British rail industry. Today, Derby is an internationally renowned center for advanced transport manufacturing, home to the world's second largest aero engine manufacturer, Rolls-Royce and Derby Lichchurch Lane Works, the UK's only remaining train manufacturer. The Toyota Manufacturing UK's automobile headquarters is found just south of the city at Berniston. All these English names look deceptively simple until I get them wrong. And here's some interesting stuff about the origins. The Roman camp of Derventio was probably at Littlechester, slash Chester Green. The site of the old Roman fort is at Chester Green. Later, the town was one of the five boroughs, fortified towns, of the Danelaw, or Danelaw, recorded in Anglo-Saxon as Diorabi, village of the deer. The popular belief is asserted by Tim Lambert, who states, the name Darby is derived from the Danish word Dior by meaning deer settlement, without reference of proof. However, the origin of the name Darby would seem to be elusive. Some assert that it is a corruption of the original Roman name, Derventio. The name could be linked with the river which flows through it, the Derwent. There's that name again. And that it could be a shortened version of Derwent by meaning Derwent Settlement. The name Derwent is Celtic and means a valley thick with oaks. The town name appears nevertheless as Darby or Darby on early modern maps such as that of Speed. So if I completely butchered any of those names, which I guess, which I'm guessing I am, um, please any of my English friends Russ Ray, Anonymous Steve, uh, The Mad Humanist, feel free to uh, let the criticism rip and uh, correct me. <laughs> okay, and so on to the next topic. So Steve and I, very briefly in passing, mentioned uh, Pink Floyd. I didn't know if he expected that the reference would go over my head, but he made a quick reference to uh, the Pink Floyd song, Have a Cigar, and I got it. And uh, Have a Cigar is off of the 1975 album, Wish You Were Here. And I'll actually play a little piece of it. Uh, hopefully this doesn't become a copyright infringement issue. But here we go, nevertheless.
I, I love the song Have a Cigar, and I was very surprised to learn that legendary English folk rock singer Roy Harper sings the uh, vocals, or the lead vocals on Have a Cigar. And that blows my mind, because I think I always uh, assumed it was uh, David Gilmore for some reason. But I was reminded, and it's weird how all this stuff uh, ties together, and recently friend of the show Heresy uh, was mentioning Carl Jung on the Weekend Out Facebook page, and she brought up synchronicity. And even though I'm a skeptic and a non-believer, this is one of those weird uh, synchronicity things. Um, But I remembered where Roy Harper was quoted in the Led Zeppelin book I had read years and years ago. It was a, um, a biography about Led Zeppelin entitled Hammer of the Gods. And I think they were friends with uh, Roy Harper, and he may even have joined them on stage at times or something like that. But I remember one of the chapters began with a quote from a Roy Harper song, and I actually tracked down the song. I think it might be called The Spirit Lives, but the quote always stuck with me. And here's a kind of longer, more fleshed out version of it. And it kind of reminds me of the whole kind of Celtic pagan thing. And we were just talking about the bog bodies and whatnot. And uh, that during that interview with Steve, um, we were both talking about our mutual appreciation of uh, pagan religion, even though obviously we don't um, believe in the supernatural claims any more than we do of, uh, you know, mainstream modern religions. But, but here's the, uh, the quote. Alas, our forebears drank the cup of poisoned alibi and made excuses far and wide and made God in the sky. The boogaloos now round the world, bad trip for everyone. No more the man of paradise or the Celt of Albion. They cue like burning moths to spread the all-time vicious lie. You Christians destroyed our tribe. I'll fight you till I die. And that still gives me the chills up my uh, spine. <laughs> but anyway, um, there you have it. So I think uh, when I was giving some information about myself and my Catholic upbringing uh, during that interview uh, episode, I gave the impression that I had undergone a Catholic education up until, you know, my mid or late teens, which is actually true. But I didn't go to some kind of uh, private Catholic school or something like that. I attended Sunday school from an early age. And I don't know if the two terms are interchangeable, but at some point they went from calling it Sunday school to uh, CCD, which stands for the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. And one of the first sacraments you get is, uh, you know, your first communion. And then when we were in eighth grade, uh, we were slated to get confirmed, uh, another sacrament. Um, and so in eighth grade, I would have been, what, like 13 years old or something. Then lucky me, right around that time, they decided to extend the period of uh, religious education, of CCD, uh, up until somewhere into the the middle high school area. So I think, I don't know if it was like Wednesday or Thursday nights, but um, once a week we had to meet at the local Catholic church, uh, St. Malachy's, and uh, attend CCD. And I remember a friend and, uh, and I used to uh, irreverently entertain ourselves by changing the, the words of the prayers. Um, I think uh, 
I think instead of our father who art in heaven, we used to say like hail Odin who art in Valhalla or uh, change it to like on earth as it is in Valhalla. Um, there we are with the pagan stuff again of any, uh, active, uh, Christians listening out there. I, I hope I'm not offending you. Um, because yeah, I think we used to start the nights off with uh, prayers or something like that. And we had this kind of stern, bespectacled priest, uh, re relatively young guy, but still kind of stern and serious, named Father Burke. May have been closeted. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <clears throat> when I think about it in retrospect. Um, okay, so what else did we talk about? We talked about the green man. And the Green Man is kind of, you know, many of us are probably familiar with it. It's kind of vague pagan symbol of a leafy uh, male face. Um, can probably often find sculptures of it in weird magazines like Sky Mall and stuff like that. Uh, but anyway, um, <clears throat> this is what Wikipedia has to say. A green man is a sculpture, drawing, or other representation of a human face surrounded by or made from leaves. Branches or vines may sprout from the nose, mouth, nostrils, or other parts of the face, and these shoots may bear flowers or fruit. Commonly used as a decorative architectural ornament, green men are frequently found in carvings on both secular and ecclesiastical buildings. The green man is also a popular name for English public houses. I think that's what uh, Steve was talking about. And various interpretations of the name appear on insides, which sometimes show a full figure rather than just the head. The green man motif has many variations, found in many cultures from many ages around the world. The green man is often related to natural vegetative deities. It is primarily interpreted as a symbol of rebirth, representing the cycle of growth each spring. Some speculate that the mythology of the green man developed independently in the traditions of separate ancient cultures and evolved into the wide variety of examples found throughout history. So that's pretty cool. I'm glad I got a chance to talk about paganism and myth and folklore. Um, because usually, since this is a show that caters mainly towards atheists and agnostics, I'm debunking religious claims instead of simply kind of celebrating and enjoying the symbolism. And I do love mythology and uh, symbolism and things like that. So I like doing this kind of fun episode, which uh, instead of uh, <laughs> tearing spiritual beliefs down, I'm just kind of enjoying the symbolism. Okay, so this next topic, I don't know if it actually made it into the end product. Steve and I talked for literally about four and a half hours. I think the final length, roughly speaking, of the episode was about three hours, 45 minutes. I left uh, a significant amount of stuff on the um, cutting room floor, figuratively speaking, since I'm using GarageBand. <laughs> um, but, uh, so this might have got left out, but we did talk about, uh, Vestal Virgins, because we were talking about, uh, Roman history, and, and uh, we really went off for a while on a tangent talking about, uh, ancient Roman history and the interaction of the, uh, of the ancient Roman and Celtic peoples. And, uh, S Steve mentioned, um, the walling up of Vestal Virgins, and there is a practice called immurement or murement, uh, which means basically 
probably one of our worst nightmares, generally speaking. Uh, you know, most of us, I would imagine. Uh, it basically means sealing someone up alive. And uh, I forget the name of this website, but I, I found a cool little website or blog by someone by, by the name of Heather Domin or Domin. And she kind of has this irreverent take on uh, ancient history. But she talks about immurement, and uh, here's what she has to say about it. Immurement was used as capital punishment by many societies, including the Greeks, Romans, Chinese, and others. In ancient Rome, vestal virgins who broke their vow of chastity were immured in caves or catacombs as punishment for their lustful ways. In the early days of Christianity, several saints were said to have been martyred via immurement, including Saint Oren of Iona, who was entombed not once but twice. Apparently, he was only mostly dead, she says in uh, parentheses. But uh, I did a little research, and um, supposedly the last emperor to... Uh, wasn't that a movie title, The Last Emperor? Uh, the last Roman emperor to sentence someone to uh, be punished with a murmur uh, was Domitian. And Domitian was a late first century emperor. Full name was Titus Flavius Caesar Domitianus Augustus. And he was the uh, the third, and according to this, the, the last emperor of the Flavian dynasty. And I think this first paragraph is from Wikipedia, I think. In 87, Vestal virgins were found to have broken their sacred vows of lifelong public chastity. As the Vestals were regarded as daughters of the community, this offense essentially constituted incest. Accordingly, those found guilty of any such transgression were condemned to death, either by a manner of their choosing or according to the ancient fashion, which dictated that Vestals should be buried alive. And this next one, I think, is from uh, RomanEmpire.net, I think it was. In AD 83, Domitian displayed that terrifying adherence to the very letter of the law, which should make him so feared by the people of Rome. Three Vestal virgins convicted of immoral behavior were put to death, it is true that these stringent rules and punishments had once been observed by Roman society, but times had changed, and the public now tended to see these punishments of the Vestals as mere acts of cruelty. And that's strange. Okay, so the second source says uh, A.D. and O. Domini, 83, while the, uh, the first says uh, 87. But essentially... The same anecdote about Domitian sentencing uh, Vestal virgins to be uh, walled up alive, um, but differing dates, but uh, still in the same decade, okay? And I remember uh, thinking to myself earlier when I was reading up on Immurement, um, it reminded me of uh, as one of my first serious girlfriends, this uh, girl named Greta. <laughs> I don't know if I should be saying her name. And she made fun of me because I, I think I was only like 19 at the time, I pronounced the name of the Edgar Allan Poe story, Cask of Amontillado, uh, Cask of Amontillado. And uh, I, am, I think I'm still bitter about that, am I? <laughs> well, at least I can laugh about it. But anyway, the, the reason why I thought of that story is because uh, the main plot of, of that short story is that uh, one man, I'm trying to think of four, is, I'm trying to think if the guy buried alive is Fortunato or, or Fortunato is the one who buries the other guy. But uh, one guy uh, basically walls up his supposed friend, I'll put friend in quotes, 
uh, alive. And uh, he slowly, uh, you know, um, slathers on the mortar and builds up this brick wall with the guy trapped behind it and seals him up alive. Disturbing stuff. Reminds me how every once in a while, I forget, I was talking to someone about this recently, how when I was younger, I used to suffer from bouts of sleep paralysis to the point where I would sometimes be afraid to go to sleep. And sleep paralysis is, you know, basically when you dream, your body kind of paralyzes your muscles so you don't act out while you're dreaming and hurt yourself or something, or so the theory goes. And once in a while with certain individuals, you'll start to go from a sleep state to a conscious state, but something goes wrong and your body's still kind of paralyzed. So you can't really, you can't open your eyes, you can't move your body. It almost feels like you're buried alive or encased in lead. And uh, I get the kind of heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. Uh, But I used to get that a lot. Uh, But why am I bringing that up? Okay, I know another thing I wanted to talk about. So I remember uh, Steve and I were talking about the Gospels. And I, I think I might have been talking about the Gospel of John and he asked if that was one of the talking cross. And I said, no, I thought that was one of the apocryphal um, or kind of outside gospels, so to speak. And it is. And uh, my hunch is right. It's the gospel of Peter. And as I said, um, certain Christian apologists will actually kind of throw the gospel of Peter under the bus. Um, And they use it as an example of what an absurd gospel is really like, you know? And and so they, so in comparison, the um, canonical gospels, the uh, synoptics and John look that much more respectable uh, or trustworthy. Uh, But yeah, so there's a talking cross in uh, the gospel of Peter And here's a little excerpt. Early in the morning when the Sabbath dawned, there came a crowd from Jerusalem and the country round about to see the sealed sepulcher. Now in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers were keeping guard, two by two in each watch there was a loud voice in heaven, and they saw the heavens open, and two men came down from there in a great brightness and draw near to the sepulcher. That stone which had been laid against the entrance to the sepulcher started of itself to roll and move sidewards. And the sepulcher was opened and both young men entered. When those soldiers saw this, they awakened the centurion and the elders, for they also were there to mount guard. And while they were narrating what they had seen, they saw three men come out of the sepulcher two of them supporting the other, and a cross following them, and the heads of the two reaching to heaven, but that of him who was being led reached beyond the heavens, and that must be Jesus, and they heard a voice out of the heavens crying, have you preached to those who sleep? And from the cross there was heard the answer, yes. So really bizarre stuff. I think I kept finding myself on the verge of uh, tripping over my own tongue while trying to pronounce sepulcher. Um, Anyway, one of my favorite words, I think, as morbid as that might sound, but uh, hard to read out loud for some reason. I hope I never get sealed alive in a sepulcher. That would suck. Um, Oh, so one more thing. Steve and I were discussing how religious America is in comparison to the UK, and he brought up the uh, subject of the rapture and how it seemed like a uniquely American thing. 
And uh, the mad humanist tweeted uh, me and said, um, well, actually, me and Steve, and mentioned how there are some links between uh, the rapture and England and that the mad humanist has known people or at least one individual over on the other side of the pond who who not only embraced the uh, doctrine of the uh, rapture but looked forward to it. So I think I'll read a little bit about the rapture and um, any uh, English connections that there might be. And here's, we probably all have some idea of what the rapture is, but here's a brief uh, synopsis from uh, Wikipedia. In Christian eschatology, the rapture refers to the belief that either before or simultaneously with the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth, believers will be raised from the earth to meet him in the air. The concept has its basis in various interpretations of the biblical book of 1 Thessalonians and how it relates to interpretations of various other biblical passages, such as those from 2 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. And uh, the mad humanist tweeted me something about, uh, I think, an Englishman who had something to do with popularizing the uh, concept of the rapture. And uh, I half-jokingly replied that, I had mentioned this individual, I think, in an episode I did uh, about end times a long time ago, um, but had completely forgotten. Um, But I'll read this a little bit. Authors generally maintain that the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine originated in the 18th century with the Puritan preachers Increase and Cotton Mather and was then then popularized in the 1830s by John Darby. And... uh, John Nelson Darby lived uh, from November 1800 to uh, April 1882, was an Anglo-Irish Bible teacher, one of the influential figures among the original Plymouth Brethren, and the founder of the Exclusive Brethren. He is considered to be the father of modern dispensationalism and futurism in the English vernacular. He produced a translation of the Bible based on the Hebrew and Greek texts called the Holy Scriptures, a new translation from the original languages by J.N. Darby. And this guy's name is spelled D-A-R-B-Y. Maybe if you Englishmen spelled Darby with an A instead of an E, (coughs) I wouldn't be eating crow right now. But anyway. But it says uh, Darby was born in Westminster, London. Um came from an Anglo-Irish land-owning family, blah, 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 Uh, (laughs) was educated at Westminster School and Trinity College, Dublin, where he graduated classical gold medalist in 1819. Classical gold medalist. Now I just, like, pictured him in a leotard. That's horrible. Okay, so... So as I mentioned in the uh, interview episode with Steve, um, I said how I thought the whole doctrine of the rapture was basically based on a fleeting passage from the New Testament. I thought maybe it was Revelation, uh, but it's actually uh, Thessalonians, but I was partially right. Some people think it's interpreted, uh, it's based on interpretation of First Thessalonians, but also uh, Second Thessalonians and, and possibly Uh, bits from Revelation too, but it it is basically based on really kind of fleeting passages. But here's the main one um, that people usually say inspired the uh, doctrine of the rapture. And this 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> and that's, that's the new international version, by the way. But I think I got uh, everything there. So I hope you enjoyed this strange, eclectic episode. And uh, until next week, and you guys know the drill, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel. Um, you can check out the archives or subscribe at the official Weekend Out Podbean page, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Just go to Podbean and look for the Weekend Out. And if you feel generous, you can donate to the show's upkeep by scrolling to the bottom of the uh, Weekend Out Podbean page and using the um, PayPal widget. There's a lot of alliteration. Um, anything else? Yeah, you can also subscribe through iTunes, uh, leave a review through iTunes. You can also listen to the show uh, via Stitcher. And I don't think anyone uses Patreon, at least not to support this show. But I think you can donate to the show via Patreon, too. Um, I think that's it. So, okay, once again, uh, thank you.